Hello, and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. Displaced is a partnership between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and Vox Media. This is the podcast that you should listen to if you want to understand the global refugee crisis that is hitting us right now, as well as humanitarian crises more broadly. We just got back from London, where we talked to a whole bunch of really interesting people who you'll hear from on the next few episodes of the podcast, starting with today's guest, Jeff Mulgan. I've known Jeff since I was 19, working with him at Demos, the think tank that he founded in the mid-1990s. He went on to be the main guru under Tony Blair. Um, He ran the Number 10 Policy Unit and the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. He now runs the UK's leading innovation agency, Nesta, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts. Jeff's most recent book that we talked to him about in this episode is called Big Mind and what Jeff refers to as collective intelligence, which is all about how machines and humans can collaborate at scale to solve problems. And as we'll see, a key concern of Jeff's is that AI, artificial intelligence, is leaving human collaboration behind and that many of the most challenging problems are not being solved and they require humans and machines to collaborate. This was a fun interview to do because, as you just heard, I got to hang out with Ravi and somebody he knew since he was just a wee pup at the age of 19. But if you're a regular listening to this podcast, you'll know that we're obsessed with innovation. It's what Ravi and I do in our day jobs. We spend our time thinking about how to use new tools to improve the impact of what we're doing and scale it up. That includes leveraging human-centered design, behavioral economics, artificial intelligence, And Jeff's ideas on collective intelligence really start to illuminate how you actually can leverage AI and machine learning and bridge it to generate solutions. We talk about how you can use this framework to respond to Ebola crisis, how you can use it to predict epidemics, how you can use it to structure peacekeeping deals, and even how you can use it to structure the daily meetings that you have in your work life. Uh, This was a really interesting interview and a really helpful way to understand how to actually bridge something that doesn't get talked about a lot in trying to connect the advances that are happening in machine learning with the current processes we have. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Jeff Mulgan. But before we get there, we'd love to hear from you. Touch base with us on Twitter, email us at displaced at rescue.org, and check out our show notes on rescue.org slash displaced. Send us anything you're thinking, guests you'd like to hear from, and general feedback on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Jeff Mulgaard, welcome to Displaced. Hello. You are the head of one of the premier institutions in the UK that's focused on innovation. And one of the things that you're I saying... I still is, actually. But... <laughs> Did I use the past tense? <laughs> By the time yeah. that people hear this podcast... <laughs> yeah. uh, what actually is innovation, right? So if innovation is something that encaptures you know, tools of war, economic growth, when, when somebody asks you who's a little bit naive, like, how do you define innovation? What do you say to them? The very simple answer to that is that it's new ideas that work. So it's not quite the same as invention. Invention is new ideas. It's not quite the same as creativity. It's not quite the same as entrepreneurship. But essentially it is is novelty put into practice to solve some problem or to be useful in some way. Um, Whenever we talk about innovation, we imagine a new future um, in the application of that novelty to generate different types of outcomes. And we haven't done it yet. That's why it's new. And so 
we're optimistic about it. We wouldn't be doing it otherwise. And there's a sense that's intrinsic in how innovation is fundamentally sold that uh, that it's bigger than it actually is. Um, and I think that there's I think that concern is right. When I think about you know some of the things that we work on in the humanitarian sector, the difference between what we actually do and what we've said we do is is quite large. So to to go under the hood. Um, our CEO, David Miliband, made a claim that we need to create a million jobs in the Syrian region for refugees. And when we then designed what I think is an innovative program for- And Grant is in charge of this, and it's going to be 5,000, oh, is, is now, <laughs> This is now going to throw me under the bus. And uh, when we actually designed it and went through the quantitative modeling to see how we could get the jobs in capturing some innovation in what the process was, it was about 5,000 jobs that we you know, would aspire to creating in Jordan. That's just one example, and I think they abound. Is is this something that resonates, right? Is And do, do you pull it back? Well, I would say there's a deeper reason for the, the problem. And uh, uh, I think there's a huge imbalance, and has been for the last 100 years, in where innovation effort and money goes. And a really interesting example of that is artificial intelligence, which is being talked about all over the place, including in the aid world. If you look back after, over the last 50 or 60 years at where investment went into AI, the great majority was in the military, better ways of killing people. Quite a lot was in intelligence agencies and surveillance. In the last 10 years, businesses started investing in AI for uh, optimizing YouTube search engines and things like that. The amount spent on AI for good, let alone AI in civil society, is almost non-existent. And therefore, you know, we live in a world where we expect some sectors to be very, very dynamic, always with new things and new technology, uh, and not just the, the, the Facebooks and um, and Googles, but also military, etc., and others, which have never had the budgets to do that. And therefore, have almost become used to being not very innovative organizations without the capacity, the skills, the labs, the resources to do what is mainstream in these other sectors. And I think that imbalance is part of why the world is so imbalanced between, you know, many countries which have dynamic economic growth, but lots of people thinking they're not benefiting, let alone the huge imbalance between war making and peacemaking in terms of effort. So your jobs one is a really good example. We're doing quite a lot of work here in the UK on new innovations around jobs using data and AI and all sorts of things. But in a way, what's amazing is no one's been doing it. Unemployment, underemployment has been an absolutely central societal problem for 10 or 20 years. But there's been literally no investment in radical innovations around jobs and unemployment because the people who need it have no power over those allocations of money. So I want to turn to your, your book, um, which is all about collective intelligence. And I'd like you to first of all actually define what you mean by collective intelligence, what its constituent parts are, but also how does it differ from the conversation we've just been having about innovation? It, it feels very, very linked, particularly given how you define successful innovation as being all about uh, nurturing a, a wider system. In a way, collective intelligence is, is very simple. It's how does intelligence happen at a, at a large scale? That could be in an organisation or a city or a country or a community. How does it think? And I guess my starting question is, if we imagined it as a brain, uh, you know, how would it think and how could it think better to solve its problems? Um, this overlaps with innovation because part of what 
we hopefully do as human beings is we're quite good at being creative for ourselves and coming up with new solutions. So the equivalent question there for a city or a region or a community is how can it be creative? But the other dimensions of intelligence are things like memory. How do you make sure you remember what was done in the past and you don't reinvent things unnecessarily or make stupid mistakes? How do you observe? How do you see what's going on in your environment around you at scale? Uh, how do you make judgments? Of, because often situations are very uh, uncertain. So what I've been working on for the last few years, in a way, comes out of the innovation work, but maybe slightly generalizing it into uh, how can we get uh, thoughtful action at larger scale. And of course, the prompt for this is the maybe rather banal observation that despite the proliferation of smart technologies and people, many systems look even stupider than they were in the past. And you see great countries full of fantastic cleverness led in really stupid ways. You see companies which have invested huge amounts in you know, hardware and PhDs making absolutely dumb mistakes. And I really wanted to understand why that was the case and how do you navigate it in an opposite direction? Can, can you give an example of that to get more specific, particularly around um, what the dissonance is between you know, investments in education intelligence but bad institutions? Well, I mean, in, in the last decade, finance was the obvious example where you know, the big Wall Street companies, the big city firms here spent more on people and technology than any other institutions and then completely failed to understand the crash that hit them in 2007-8 and made catastrophic decisions, which, of course, sent the whole world into recession. Uh, I think national governments are good examples. I won't make any comment on the American president, but there are other, other countries too full of very smart people which somehow end up with leaders who are clearly dumb and propagate a sort of almost anti-intelligent way of talking about their needs and their problems and their solutions. And I think many people out there feel the world is, they certainly don't feel the world's becoming smarter in understanding its problems either at the micro level, let alone things like climate change. So I completely buy the argument that uh, you see lots of companies that spend an awful amount of money and incredibly capable will actually display dumb behaviour. But to what extent does your framework about collective intelligence help explain things like the rise of far-right movements or the persistence of civil wars or other failures that you see very commonly in organisations? I, I certainly don't try and explain everything under the sun. Um, but really? there are, uh, but there are some quite there are some prescriptions for certainly for organisations and companies. So, in a sense, the most basic point of the book is that if you are an organisation or if you're a, you could be a, a region, you can think about how you think. How well are you observing what's going on, which could be crop yields or climate or people movements, etc. And you can do that well or badly. You can analyse well or badly. You can organise creativity well or badly. Memory, etc. And then the crucial step of the argument is that to be either an intelligent individual, let alone an intelligent um, sort of community, you have to do what I call learning loops. So there's a first learning loop, which is very everyday, where you get some new data in and that then you adjust your behavior. You see there's going to be a terrible you know, uh, uh, weather pattern in a week or two's time, so you prepare for it. Uh, and again, organizations can do that well or badly. But often we find our own met old methods of thinking aren't very helpful and you need to generate a new category to make sense of the world you're in. 
Uh, you know, gang fighting is a really good example, where often gang battles are misunderstood because people don't have the right framing categories to understand the dynamics of what lead young men into violence in gangs. And unless you get the new category, you can't understand it with first loop learning. And then what I call third loop learning is when you must reinvent your whole thinking system. So medicine's a really good example, which has done this repeatedly over the last few hundred years, completely reinvented how it thinks, how it captures data, how it organises evidence, how it trains its doctors. And that's a third loop. Now, there are many organisations which are quite good at first loop learning, including, again, the big banks were very good at that, but they were hopeless at generating new categories to make sense of a change in the environment or the need to understand carbon or the need to understand uh, the risk of a, of a profound recession or the need to understand how all their flash trading and hedge funds and other tools might have completely undercut the, the algorithms they were using. And so uh, I guess the, I hope the useful part of my book is really as a frame for understanding what can you do if you are a government or an NGO or a business it doesn't explain the rise of the far right or all the perils of the world, but I don't think you can solve, you can come up with solutions to those without at least some element of collective intelligence. So just to uh, get all the more concrete, can you tactically kind of uh, map on what should an organization that's looking to embrace collective intelligence do? What does, what does this look like in practice? Well, the, the simple starting point, and this is, this is something we've been doing quite a bit of work with some of the UN agencies on, is just to ask, what are, the, what are the resources around you you could be tapping into? First of all, to, to see better, to understand the environment you're in. So if you're in, let's say, you know, a small sub-Saharan African country, you will have some, um, some data, which the government collects, but you also have lots coming from satellite observation, which may be giving you better insights than the government data. Your mobile phone company probably has a better idea of how people are moving around and how economic activity is shifting between cities, at least, than you have as a government. And then you can mobilize citizens to generate their own data. There are many examples around the world of citizen-generated data on things like flooding patterns or corruption patterns and so on. So that's point one. Just think you know, creatively a, a, about how you tap those resources. There's then a whole set of other methods of how you do the analysis and the thinking and the, 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 the looking at different options. And there there's some great examples in, in democracy. Uh, we have a visit next week, in fact, from Taiwan, which has probably gone furthest in the world in bringing into its parliament really a structured collective intelligence process for thinking about issues and problems, what are the facts, then having a much more open process of looking at what are the dimensions of those facts and the different options, scrutiny, etc., before then feeding back into decision-making by in their case, parliament and, and ministers. And was any organisation, again, can organise can organize its decision-making in ways which tap into a wider collective intelligence and not just you know, the bureaucrats, the managers uh, inside. And then finally, I think there's a whole dimension of this in terms of monitoring what actually happens, getting rapid feedback. Is your new programme working? Is your intervention happening as you expected it to? Which you can gather through formal data or sensor data, but also from citizen input and subjective feedback from people. How's it going? And we're incredibly lucky in some ways now. We live in a world where 
the costs of doing these things are so low compared to what they were five or 10 or 15 years ago. The problem is they often require completely different skills from the insiders, often a completely different culture in the organization, which has to be much more porous, much more open, much more confident in getting those inputs. But the payoff, if you do that well, is you make just much smarter decisions, which benefit many more people. So let's take yeah, some issues that are of particular relevance to people who think about uh, the humanitarian crises that we, we see. Let's take Ebola or, or Zika. That's probably an area where I think collective intelligence could play a role in predicting outbreaks or spotting them much earlier on and then mobilizing capabilities. Have you seen that happening already and, and what's the potential for it to grow even further? Yeah, I think there's huge potential around epidemics and there's... Um, there's some smallish startups like, like AIME doing this, as well as big organizations like the WHO and Welcome. And essentially, you know, what Amy does is, first of all, mobilize a, a much richer set of inputs to spot outbreaks of uh, dengue fever or Zika, whatever it may be, and ensure that is done in a coherent way. They've even experimented with gamifying. So there are sort of rewards for people a bit like Pokemon Go to sort of spot um, potential uh, you know, sources of, of outbreaks. Um, then you feed that into predictive algorithms uh, using artificial intelligence to predict how they're likely to spread looking at um, patterns of, of transport and mobility. Then you feed that into public health systems so they can act preemptively before the epidemic spreads. And ideally, you organize that as a, as a very transparent collective learning system so everyone within it can see the data and the thinking processes of everyone else. There's another great example on um, uh, called the metabiome, dealing with antimicrobial resistance in subways. Again, bringing global data together on uh, the rise of um, uh, so antibiotic resistance um, and the genome of bacteria so that, as, uh, as is highly likely to happen in the next few years, as bacteria start spreading which are resistant to uh, antibiotics, you can spot them much more quickly. You can have the whole world brain, as it were, thinking in real time, and then mobilizing uh, both medical science and public health workers quickly to stop that stop millions of people dying. So I think there are examples in almost every field emerging in this way. The real problem is no one quite sees it as their job to do it. The funding for these things is very fragmentary. And so although we've got the potential of genuine global collective intelligence on things like epidemics, or for that matter, climate change, uh, it's we, we lack the institutions to, to really orchestrate. Why would the World so, Health so, Organization think it's their job to do that? They should do. I mean, in a way, it is closer to their job, just as in a way IPCC does that to a degree for climate change. But that's not how the WHO was set up. So let me push back on this. And I don't know if this is the reason the WHO is not actually participating in it. But um, pulling out the pandemic threat and uh, identification um, actually, I think, speaks to larger issues. So one of the things that we know from when disasters uh, happen, and, and even not when disasters happen, is that people are putting information into a system, and a lot of it's just wrong. Yeah. Oftentimes, these are rumors that are then amplifying. And there's been a recent set of studies that have particularly looked at Twitter and other forms of social media to actually assess the empirical magnitude of some of these effects. And there's one um, from a University of Albany researcher that we'll post in the show notes that was looking at um, tweets around the Boston 
marathon bombing and Hurricane Sandy. And they looked at um, tweets that were that were false, that retroactively we knew were wrong about information about the event. And they calibrated that about 85% of people who saw that then endorsed it and put it throughout their system. There's been additional empirical work looking at the Liberian Ebola um, epidemic showing the roles of rumors in uh, shaping based um, how communities work, what response was like. And so to me, it's actually not quite clear that there's as pretty of a story. And, and there's two things that I think are worth kind of diving into. One is Oftentimes, people don't know, or there's an incentive to misrepresent. And then secondly, this then starts to get at community dynamics, right? I think that there's kind of like a putting kind of communities and people coming together, the collectives on a pedestal in this world. And really, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now in tech and in platforms is that really a lot of this brings out our, our worst demons rather than our better angels. Yeah. Um, uh, and so how do you think about those things? I completely agree with you. And, and I think there's a sort of naive view that the crowd is wise. And anyone who's of a meta crowd knows it's not <laughs> necessarily uh, wise. And lots of things can, can go wrong. So, I mean, Google flu trends was an example a few years ago where it appeared that Google searches predicted flu outbreaks. And for a while they did, and then they didn't. Uh, lots of people have used semantic analysis of Twitter to try and predict all sorts of things from, um, you know, uh, recessions to health outbreaks. And again, they sometimes do it well and sometimes not. In any real situation, there will be powerful incentives for misinformation and, uh, and distortion. There are enemies of collective intelligence in any real-world environment. Human beings sometimes lie, shockingly. <laughs> Human beings sometimes what are you talking uh, about? distort yeah. things. And this is what I think is making the collective intelligence field so fascinating at the moment, is whereas probably 10 years ago there was a bit of a sort of was naive hope that you just tap the world brain and you can solve any, any problem under the sun. Now it's becoming much more fine-grained. So when do you have things very open and when do you only almost allow people into the crowd when they've proven they have some useful knowledge to bring, that they are trustworthy, that they're not uh, distorting? In the case of epidemics, uh, in the examples I gave, um, you know, they try and restrict it to the medics curating the uploading of information again, to, 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 to avoid some of those dynamics. But we're in a period of rapid experiment to find out exactly what works best. And um, nearly always, I think, what we will end up with is quite closely managed or even curated crowds. Just as in artificial intelligence, I think some people probably assume artificial intelligence is all about just having a load of data which trains an algorithm and then you get a wonderful output. The reality of artificial intelligence is it's nearly always much more curated and managed by humans who fiddle and adjust and iterate until the algorithm is useful. Exactly the same will be true in collective intelligence. It'll be much more hands-on a process than just yeah waiting for the crowd to do its best. And... So we've spoken a lot about pandemics and, and how you intervene early there. What about conflict prevention and conflict uh, in identification? I mean, you've done some work on this in terms of to what extent can you actually predict conflict outbreaks? I don't know what the actual data says. Um, well, this is this is actually interesting because it speaks to collective intelligence. There is, over the past 10, 15 years, been a growth in the attempt to predict conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think you talk to most people and they're like, we can't predict war. And I think the important thing to note is when we're talking about can, asking the question, can you predict conflict? To me, the question is, can you do better than flipping a coin, yeah. right? You know, is it going to happen or is it not going to happen? You could probably get it right 50% of the time if you flip a coin. So can you do better than that? 
And what you're starting to see from the data that's being collected and the kind of machine learning algorithms that are being tuned is that you can do a pretty decent job. So uh, from the top of my head, you know, I think that right now some of the kind of more recent conflict predictions get at about 80% accuracy. Accuracy. So that means that there's a 30% gain from 50% to be able to predict conflict. Now, there's another interesting part, though, which is uh, Phil Tetlock um, and uh, and his co-authors did a study where they wanted to compare how mach- kind of machine learning did to experts. And so they set up a few tournaments to essentially generate collective intelligence. And what they found was that actually experts and the way that you then structured expertise coming into the system um, outperformed um, data and machine learning. And now I think where the frontier is, is that you're thinking about how to integrate those two to to generate higher quality predictions. So m- many years ago, when I ran the UK government strategy unit, we, we were part of a joint project with the CIA then on conflict uh, prediction. Then I think even the best sort of structural models were more like 30, 35 You should have interrupted earlier. You uh, <laughs> Um, uh, and in a way, where, where I ended up was thinking there are a series of structural things like um, um, often on, on environmental conditions and social conditions and demographics, which were fairly clear uh, um, potential conditions for conflict. There's then a whole series of behaviours by leaders, which are very as well, tactical and of the moment, which can either you know, build, turn those into acute conflicts or not. So I think it's completely wrong ever to assume that structural conditions drive conflict. It's always structural conditions plus the very context-specific choices, often relatively small numbers of leaders. And this is the key lesson, I think, of the, the, the best political science of the last 50 years, people like um, Charles Tilley. But interesting, you can now map those with new methods because often that will be appearing in social media and you can analyse what's coming out of the radio and so on. So I think the methods of, of understanding are, are much superior, uh, but they have to be hybrids, structural and, uh, and um, sort of event analysis. And then I would absolutely agree with what you say, that the, the best models now are combinations of humans and machines. IARPA, which is the intelligence side of, of um, you know, what used to be called DARPA, the inventor of the internet, is running this large-scale program on hybrid forecasting where you combine expert teams and machine learning to try and improve the ability to do intelligence analysis. Now, this, in a way, reinforces one of my earlier points. I'm not aware of anything remotely comparable in sort of civil society. The amount of resource and brain power devoted to military issues and sort of security issues and intelligence is so far away from anything in the big foundations or the charity world. About a year ago, I published a thing on how big foundations could use artificial intelligence. And we sent it around all the big US and other foundations. And it appeared literally there was no one in any of them technically interested in how they could apply it to their own work. Um, I would love to see some of those IARPA methods being used for social goals. But are uh, are we seeing the intelligence agencies actually develop these capabilities? Because again, from my experience in the Foreign Office, um, I was always struck by actually how little we really knew particularly about the places that we were heavily active in like Iraq and Afghanistan. When When you actually looked at it we knew far less than we needed to, given the, the kind of bets we were making. So do you think that we will see um, those intelligence agencies get smarter at this? Well, I don't know. Always their risk will be they overemphasize secondary data, essentially, um, you know, analysis reports and so on, rather than triangulating that by talking to people on the ground and getting that kind of 
um, uh, ground level view of things. And this is this is always a risk for states. States always see in a particular way, which is too abstract, too generalized, uh, um, uh, blind to the nuance and the context people live in. And certainly British foreign policy has often suffered from that but in the past. Is, and this is an important part about, um, I think some of the fetishization around prediction in particular, just because you can predict something doesn't mean you understand what's happening. Yeah. Um, so you could, for example, say we know that that country is likely to have a conflict, but have no idea exactly what's happening. A useful example, I think, to illustrate this is if you looked at if you're trying to understand what predicted my left shoe size, mm -hmm. the best predictor that you could get is the size of my left foot. Mm -hmm. But that like really tells you nothing about why that is the size of my shoe. Mm. And you start to see a lot of this in kind of similar fields where your predictors that are doing a lot of work in these underlying models are are highly correlated. And so you kind of understand whether something's going to happen or what's, you know, what's related to it, but you don't understand why it's going on. Yeah. I mean, in a way, what interests me probably more than the world having fantastic global prediction systems. I mean, they, they, they matter and ideally they should be run much more as a commons where everyone can benefit from them. Uh, although maybe you don't want Vladimir Putin to benefit as much as, uh, as you do. But is the com almost complete absence of learning systems for the solutions. So let's take, you know, migration flows across Sahel, etc. Um, it might not be that difficult to come up with predictions of how those might, uh, you know, rise or fall in response to everything from uh, climate, economic growth to you know, EU policies. But even more important then is rapid learning from the myriad of attempts to do something about it, uh, either in Europe in terms of, for example, you know, refugee integration or jobs projects or housing projects. The level of organisation of that knowledge is so thin so weak compared to you know what other fields like medicine take for granted uh, i'd always rather see effort being devoted to orchestrating collective intelligence around the solution side than just the analytic prediction problem side and again it's not clear who thinks it's their job to organize the world brain i mean europe this is europe's most pressing crisis of the moment uh, we're involved in projects on this in Italy, in Germany, in the UK, but there is not a concerted systematic orchestration of the lessons being learned from those thousands of projects trying to deal with every aspect of refugee integration. It's a glaring institutional gap as much as a sort of knowledge gap. Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast and smart a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter, ziprecruiter.com slash displaced. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter dot com slash displaced that's ziprecruiter.com slash d-i-s-p-l-a-c-e-d ziprecruiter.com slash displaced
ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One of the projects that we're involved in at the moment is working with Stanford about how to think about resettling refugees to the right location. And they took some of our data and uh, and other agencies and looked at if you match people based on their characteristics and the characteristics of the local uh, place, whether you could improve employment yeah, rates. And it yeah. suggests that you could improve employment rates by about 40% yeah. in the US, in, 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 in Switzerland by 75%. And that's a very simple set of data that's going in. You could imagine it being much more refined. You could imagine, for instance, having some local sponsors of refugees, families, and you could match those volunteers to the right person. And that was, a, again, a sort of example of the blending of face-to-face uh, with digital data. But you're pessimistic about the and fact, Just on that, yeah. and that's a lovely example, which has been much noticed... But what you then want is the different agencies to be using that algorithm to help with settlement and then feeding back in real time the data about whether it turned out to be right. <laughs> yeah, we, still, uh, we, start with, we, are try, we are trying to pilot this and we still okay. haven't got the funding to get okay. it. So it's right. a good example of your, right. you know, why, yeah. why when that, that paper dropped, we should have people beating down our door, frankly, to, yeah. to fund this. But I want to get to this point about whether you think that... Um, we will get the social innovation benefit almost by trickle down. And whether in the same way that we've seen so many uh, benefits from technology that have been developed by the military being used elsewhere, will, will it actually have a, a social innovation div- dividend at some point? Yeah, and, and, and at, at some point, drones is an interesting example, mainly developed by the military, then moving into commercial uses, and then the last four or five years, you know, quite a few social uses, but still incredibly slow. Mm. We run here in the UK projects with the five big cities on public benefit use cases of drones, but they're only starting in the second half of 2018. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's a slow process. And on AI, I think the, the concern there is whether civil society will have have the, the capabilities, the skills to make use of potential trickle down. There's lots of tools out there, but of course the algorithms aren't much use unless they've had the right training data. And there's a, a terrible dearth of skills. A few places like Korea are directly trying to attend to that and with you know, big data academies for uh, charities and so on, but that's very much the exception. Having lived in San Francisco, I just want to say there were drones that delivered tacos at one time <laughs> yes. yeah. to try things out. So, yeah. uh, you know, there, there, there's some groundbreaking um, examples out yeah. there. Uh, you spent um, quite a bit of time in government heading the strategy unit. Um, you were Tony Blair's uh, top policy advisor for some time. Um, and you now have come to the innovation side and, and pulling one of the threads out that you started with that governments are often quite poor. Um, and mismatch to the tasks at hand. When you look now look at government um, from your vantage point, what are some of the institutional reforms that you think um, should be adopted? Wow, how do you stop me? Um, <laughs> so Jeff set up a lot of units and a lot of processes in governments. Well, we, we now work with about 40 governments around the world. Um, and just, there are probably two or three dimensions to, the, to your question, which is quite a big question, how should government change? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, some of them are about sort of structures and institutions, and I think there are now a lot of options for organising government very differently from in the past, much more horizontal, much more project-based, uh, breaking free from the 19th century model where everything was done through departmental silos with very strong boundaries. There are so many parts of government which should be organised horizontally, ranging from very um, technical things like uh, identification or payments through to knowledge management and memory, etc. 
That's in theory the easy bit, though it's in practice quite hard. There's then a second set of things which are really about mindset. A lot of our work with governments, and I'll be in Colombia, for example, next Monday, you know, is where we're trying to encourage bureaucrats to think of themselves much more as problem-solving, sort of entrepreneurs, impresarios, rather than people who are essentially implementing laws and, uh, and trying to keep the, the public at bay. And that's a dramatic shift of almost inner mindset, uh, relative to which the it's almost easier to do the skills stuff. How do they become data savvy or understand experiments or those sort of things? We find that bit's quite easy, but it's getting almost to the, the, the emotional, the self-image of what it means to be a government is the deeper change. And what we've called this program called States of Change is working with governments which actually want to achieve that uh, almost redefinition of their, their existence. <laughs> what are they for? You've got to remember, many countries, people went in to become a bureaucrat for a secure job, a safe life, high status, not to fix the problems of their country. We're trying to almost get back to a deeper ethos of public service. And the good thing is a lot of people really respond to that well. It makes them feel better about themselves when they wake up in the morning, you know, look in the mirror. They have a sense of, of a mission and moral purpose but um, I'd say most people in most governments around the world are definitely not there at all. This is an even harder question that relates to that, which is what does it make you think about very fragile states that lack the basic capacity to govern and what the kind of first steps you need to take to actually get on the, the first rung of the ladder? Because obviously that's something we, we deal with all the time. Well, I mean, it, in a sense, the essence of a, of a state is is order, is the provision of basic order. So um, uh, to the extent I have worked in some places with very fragile states, it's, it's being able to establish almost a minimum of functioning order, physical security, uh, basic rule of law, etc., and all the other stuff, you know, has to be has to be secondary. And you now there is now quite a lot of experience, I thought, about um, about how you do that, how you prioritize that. And I think the paradox is often the skill set and mindset needed for that is different from what you then need at a later stage when you can move into uh, experiment and creativity and innovation. Uh, so the, the, the very heart of, 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 uh, of the state, and I actually once wrote a book about this, looking back over thousands of years and different civilizations, how pretty much every state throughout history has at its core had the delivery of, of protection and security, uh, justice, you know, and, uh, and, um, and welfare. Those are the three dimensions of any state, and you, you need to start there, with, in, and in probably in that order, protection, justice, welfare. You did also add a, add a fourth, which was truth, which I think is particularly ironic in today's times, but anyway. <laughs> well, well remembered. And, uh, and, well, I, and I think it matters, certainly all these collective intelligence projects, there has to be some confidence that the state uh, has a commitment to fact and truth and problem solving, and was to a, to a, a commons of knowledge, and and weirdly, that is one of the things which then does emerge when failing states cease failing, is that there is actually a, a domain of shared truth um, becomes a, a really important asset of the country, and perhaps it's even most valuable one. So it wasn't completely daft, I think, to add that one in there. <laughs> One of the things that I liked about your book was um, the very uh, useful illustrations of how to apply collective intelligence in different domains. Um, and one 
which is particularly applicable probably to every single listener of this podcast, is the question about how do you improve meetings and make them more effective. And, and I don't know about you, but I think that we could probably be 50% more productive in our meetings, at least. They, they seem like a very uh, poor use of many people's times. So I'd, I'd love you to sort of say a little bit more about your top tips on, on how to think about meetings. But from our perspective, we're also thinking about quite interesting meetings, such as how you facilitate and structure peace processes. We had Jan Egeland on our podcast recently to ask him about how he structured the Oslo Agreement and how you think about how you build trust, how do you maintain secrecy, um, all these different things that are critical in uh, in building out a process. So uh, we'll, we'll move on to your sort of uh, meetings uh, suggestions in a second, but I'd just love, love you to sort of reflect on when you think about peace processes and, and mediations, whether there are any things that you can uh, apply your framework to. Wow, I think you'll, you'll be much more expert on that than than I am. Um, I mean, just to go back to the reason I got interested in meetings was because we organise lots of meetings here and I go to lots. And like most people, I find most meetings pretty dispiriting and, uh, and, and depressing and particularly academic meetings, business meetings, government meetings. And, and it did turn out when I then did research on what's, what, what do we know about meetings, how should you organise them, that nearly all these meetings were at odds with what was known. <laughs> and I went around universities asking, what, you know, what, what science of meetings do you use to decide how you organise your conferences? And none of them could give a coherent answer to that question. Um, a lot about how you design meetings then depends on their purpose. So if the purpose is trust building, Know, between groups who hate each other or have been killing each other, that's a very different kind of task in terms of meeting design and scale and rhythm and curation than if you're, you know, an academic conference of papers on astrophysics or something like that. Well, or people a, also hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> let alone, you know, a parliament, which is a, an ongoing uh, meeting. Um, and so part of what I was trying to do then is, is distinguish between the different purposes of meetings. And in a peace process, there may be very different stages, one of which is essentially basic trust building. There may then be a negotiation process. They may then be a joint sort of problem-solving process, all of which require different methods. I think some of the generic principles which, which really struck me, and they were not ones we were applying, so they uh, were in some ways quite simple things. So one was about... Um, uh, roles. So often the best meetings have quite a few different articulated roles for different people. You know, one who keeps it to time, one who makes sure you're not deviating from the task, one who makes sure everyone's getting a chance to speak. And that seems to me pretty universal that most meetings are better if there are more so curation roles explicitly in there. There are very interesting principles about introverts and extroverts, again, crucial for peace processes, that you have processes which allow the introverts to speak. And uh, if you don't allow for that, they won't speak. And if you don't allow them enough time to think before they speak, they'll feel uncomfortable and, and disempowered. Um, there's lots of methods now for using different mediums in meetings, including you know screens and visuals and drawing, and as well as talk and paper. Amazon, for example, you know, uses six-page papers which everyone reads in silence before the meeting starts, which actually is you know, quite a nice method. Uh, and again, you can imagine some negotiation or peace process meetings using some tools like that in a way to, to quieten people down, to calm them down before they dive into um, taking positions. 
I think this is a field very, very rich for, um, for research, for experiment. In my experience, almost every organization uses the meeting formats it's always used, and it's always very rarely reflected on them, or they leap to new innovations like open space methods, uh, which were innovative 30 years ago, but to my mind, have almost as many flaws as the very hierarchical conference models they were trying to uh, be a response to. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, certainly curating meetings amongst people with, uh, with strongly opposed views needs a lot of care. And the, perhaps the final thing I'll say, I found for many meetings, I almost tried to come up with a mathematical formula uh, of you know, how long you have, how many people are taking part, how widely divergent their backgrounds or views are. I think that there is, I'm sure my formula isn't quite right, but I think there's a basic insight that how you design your meeting uh, will, will differ. If you've got a lot of time, then you can have people from very widely varying backgrounds and deal with quite complex issues. If you haven't got much time, you know, keep the numbers down, keep the focus much smaller, et cetera, et cetera, which may be stating the obvious, but again, amazing proportion of meetings ignore these basic points. So, I want to ask one final question, Jeff, yeah. which is the inspiration for this book. I mean, you talked earlier about your frustration at the idiocy that you see collectively and also the way in which AI has been applied in certain fields more than others. But you personally, I know, once sort of learned quite a lot from Buddhism, for instance, and I'm interested in whether any of your thinking about collective intelligence and collective wisdom um, actually derives from philosophies and religions that uh, maybe have, have got insights to, to, to understand? Uh, well, maybe it's a two parts of the answer. So I, I'm sure there is a bit of influence from um, Buddhist thinking, not least it in a way tells you your own brain is like a collective intelligence. It's a, you know, an illusion to believe there is a, a self which is coherent and has persistence. You are full of lots of different bits of your brain, sometimes competing, sometimes collaborating, uh, and thought is an emergent property of all of them. And once you see yourself like that, I think it's much easier to think of large groups as like that, uh, rich, writ large. And a lot of the best collective intelligence happens when people do give up that sense of, of ego and pride. Uh, and in the book, I talk about the creation of an autonomous commons, a space where you can really leave ego at the door as being crucial for good teamwork. And that's true of football teams, it's true of orchestras, jazz bands, all sorts, you know, they create a space where they can talk to each other in an honest, open, rigorous, critical way without pride getting in the way. So there's a, there's a little bit from that. But in terms of, I guess, my, my bigger motivation is in some ways, I, I think we, we're very lucky to be living at this moment when we're seeing an extraordinary step change in how data, information, knowledge can be organised. It makes living now incredibly exciting in some ways. And yet we don't see that being reflected in how we deal with the problems which matter most. And I think one of the reasons that isn't happening is that we're lacking, as it were, a, a discipline, a profession, a way of thinking about exactly the fine-grained choices you were talking about earlier, let's say on false reports of epidemics, or when is a crowd wise, or when does it go crazy? And I spent the last three, three or four years going to nearly all the big universities around the world, essentially asking if I was trying to invent you know, a new global brain for epidemics or climate change, or whatever, who do you have who could help me? 
and none of them had anyone. None of them had a department. None of them had a, an academic discipline. They had fantastic computer science or data science or psychology people or organizational people, but not the key skills we now need who can weave together the technology, the data, the AI with humans at large scale. So one of the things we're trying to do, luckily with a bunch of partners around the world now, in the next few years is try and almost build, not, not from scratch, but to build a new discipline. A bunch of people, a body of research, a body of knowledge to help the next generation of collective intelligence projects, which may be about jobs in Glasgow or cancer care, uh, epidemics in sub-Saharan Africa, perhaps post-conflict reconstruction, to help them to be part of a field which cumulatively learns about these often quite subtle, sophisticated uh, questions on the boundary of, say, psychology, computing, etc., etc. And to me, that's a really exciting prospect. And we're getting a fantastic response from all sorts of people within organizations, within universities. And I'm much more confident than six months ago that within a few years, we will see a genuinely new field taking shape, which is much more self-critical, much more rigorous, much more evidence-based. But above all, I hope useful to people grappling with the really big problems. Have you named the field yet? Well, we're calling it collective intelligence design. So we've set up here a center for collective intelligence design to emphasize we want this all to be about design. How in practice do you design meetings or do you design you know, data harvesting? It's not theoretical. Uh, well, it will have, have a bit of theory, but it, it, it's meant to be a practical discipline. Uh, in a way, a little bit like what urban studies and urban planning did 100 years or so ago when you know cities were growing out of control and there were really good architects and engineers and sociologists but they weren't coming together in the way that was really needed to help cities thrive and get on with each other in a, in a good way and we're trying to do a little bit of an equivalent for 21st century collective intelligence. Jeff Mulligan thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us and tell your friends to subscribe and download. All of this helps to grow the podcast. We need your collective intelligence to get the best input on what we need to do next. Womp womp. <laughs> Our show is produced by Vox Media. We'd like to thank associate producer Jelani Carter, audio engineer Jarrett Floyd, and our senior producer, Golda Arthur. And at the IRC, our team is Alex Bandea, Ben Moskovitz, and Catherine Long. Get in touch with us on Twitter or email us at displaced at rescue.org and check out our show notes, rescue.org slash displaced. We would love to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter, email us at displaced at rescue.org, and check out the show notes that we put up on rescue.org slash displaced. We'd love to hear from you on the guests you'd like to see on this podcast, the topics you'd like to see covered, and any general feedback. Get in touch with us.